Hello, welcome to Whiskey Bench. I'm Steven Torna. <laughs> I'm Kat Dwyer. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm Kat right. Dwyer. Hello. We're here. We are here. <laughs> Sunday, March 19th. After a uh, rough uh, first attempt at an intro. Yeah. And a, <laughs> rough I don't know, second. six out of ten for a second. <laughs> but uh, I think we're rolling with it now. We're, we're in it. Yeah, Sunday, March 19th. <laughs> Episode eighty. Oh, is is it episode eighty? Yeah. I I I labeled this document as seventy nine. Oh. So I, I made it was no. 80. I think you're right. I just can't keep track. <laughs> Exciting. That is really awesome. We are uh, recording at the end of the weekend. We just had St. Patrick's Day, mm-hmm. which I did absolutely nothing for. Neither did I. I. <laughs> Got home and went to bed, which is sad. Well, you know, <laughs> but probably needed the rest. I did get to go out last night, have a couple beers, shoot some pool. Oh. So I guess that's St. Patrick-y. Where'd you go? Uh, the Molly. Oh, nice. Yeah. Good old spot. Yeah. I went there with uh, Mr. Zach, mm. McKinley. Nice. Sam. Oh, fun. A couple other people that you don't know. Right it, was on. Good. it was a good time. And uh, today, just did a little prep for Whiskey Bench and just getting life in order for the next week. There it is. We didn't record last week. That's right. We threw a banger party instead. That's right. <laughs> Worth it. <laughs> um, what's, uh, what's new in the last couple of weeks? Nothing. Just the usual things I don't. I don't know. There you go. I, I got you. I get you. <laughs> Lots ya. of stressful things. Yes. That are still falling into place, so I'm not ready. I don't want to, Yes. you know, announce them. Totally. In case I just wind up homeless in a couple weeks. Right. Yeah. No, I get that. No, that's good. We're also in this weird, horrible transition period between winter and spring. <laughs> I don't mind spring in Montana. No, I love spring, but right now it's like... Nice one day and then freezing cold. And it's then supposed to snow tonight. Freezing rain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. Today was beautiful, though. Right. And it's just a glimpse. You get a glimpse. Mm-hmm. Yes. This week's going to be awesome. And then you tell me it's going to snow. Right. Yep. Like, All right. Well, here we are. It's snowing. Our uh, roads are crumbling. I'm actually kind of surprised by how big the potholes are. Like, like from year to year. Impressive. Mm-hmm. Like huge. Yes. Like, t- like get your tires stuck in them. And like just from a season, yeah, of ice and you know plowing, I assume is yep primary culprit. There are plenty of places around town where like you can't, you just can't avoid them. Nineteenth, the shoulder between yeah. when you first make like if you're on coming off of Huffine before it turns into Maine, take a left. It's it's like dangerous. Yeah, the whole like right side is just littered with potholes for like twenty feet. Or more than 20 feet. Yeah. So watch out out there. Don't fall in any holes. Oh. This week, we are shifting gears slightly. We're going to do a little bit of a deep dive into banking. This is somewhere in between a long format and a news and brews. Yeah. So I don't, this is kind of more like old school whiskey bench. Mm-hmm. Where we just kind of dive into a news-ish topic, but deeper, I yeah. suppose. 
So that's great. This will be fun. It was good to to look into some of this and get brushed up on certain aspects of banking as well as learn a couple new things. I'm interested to see what you think of this. There's been a lot of extreme like panic mode people. Yeah. And a lot of really chill like nah it's not a big deal <laughs> so i'm interested to know where where you lie on this cool um likewise and i don't know exactly where i lie on this but we'll we'll flush this all out tonight but first we gotta go with the drink per usual it's delicious it actually is i've never had it before tonight we're drinking an irish maid in honor of saint patrick's day mm-hmm. figured i'd pick something irishy We've already, I believe, last year featured the Irish Ale for St. Patrick's Day, which was Irish whiskey, ginger beer. It's mm. kind of like an Irish whiskey mule. So that was out of the picture. But I am surprisingly impressed with this. It's very good. It is two ounces of Irish whiskey, three quarters an ounce of lemon, half an ounce of St. Germain, which is an elderflower liqueur and a little bit of simple syrup shake it strain it enjoy it it is very refreshing i like a whiskey drink with like citrus floral notes it's nice yeah it is really good gin with that and i think what also really helps is instead of simple syrup i use some honey Mm. i think that just kind of like amplifies that floral floral and mm. good call so it does not suck I could drink so much of that. I know. <laughs> uh, before we continue, I mean, we just kind of glossed over the fact that we threw a banger party last week. Well done, friends. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all drank a lot. It was fun. <laughs> I, we, I probably didn't need a martini to close the night. Yes. Yes. That's right. I forgot about <laughs> Maybe that. Maybe interesting We choice. drank uh, a fifth, well, more than that, technically three fifths of Negroni. That's right. Um, we had a lot of an entire <laughs> bottle of whiskey, almost an entire second bottle of gin, probably a dozen plus beers. It was good. It was a good and a bottle of wine. So <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. Uh, Tornan did like a beautiful Italian feast with chicken parmesan and what are the eggplant? I can't remember. Uh, the name. Involtini. Involtini. Yeah. Yeah. It's like this rolled eggplant. Delicious. Like stuffed eggplant, essentially. Yeah. Very good. Quite good. Smoked mushrooms. Oh, yeah. Tiramis- those were great. Tiramisu. Mm-hmm. I made kale salad. Oh, and it was good. It was great. <laughs> it was simple, but good. And some antipasta and all sorts of other tasty treats. So, yeah. It was a great turnout. Tons of fun. Everyone listening that was there. Grazie. Everyone listening who wasn't there. Savvy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a reason you weren't invited. Oh, stop. <laughs> There's like our one listener in India who's right. like, what? What? <laughs> Talk about banking already. Yeah, exactly. So, yes, we're going to dive into the SVB collapse slash other banks. Yes. Slash probably more to come. Possible. Possible. Mm-hmm. So... Where uh where are we where are we starting this evening? I mean, we can just kind of 
dive into to SVB and go from there. Great, um, let's do it. I guess the gist is, and by the time people have listened to this episode, you know, it'll have been about a week. Mm-hmm. If we get it out on Monday, a week from the collapse, and there have been there's been a lot of media coverage. Normally, on our news and brews, we try to pick stories that we think are underreported. This is just something, again, kind of a quasi long form that we just a topic we were interested in. So I'm sure our listeners will have read and heard a lot about this. So I'm just gonna like quickly kind of go over the fundamentals of what happened with this in with SVB in particular. But basically. It was overleveraged with deposits invested in government bonds. It had almost 40% of their assets were invested in government mm-hmm. bonds. Those are typically considered to be very safe, a safe investment tool. Right. But because bonds have an inverse relationship with interest rates, as interest rates rose, uh, the price of the bonds declined and so basically what they held were less desirable forms of bonds because they they bought in they bought in with low interest rates yep yep and so basically when the banks realized that they didn't have enough liquidity on hand they had to sell those bonds to raise capital and again because interest rates have been rising they were losing money on that investment so they lost money when they cashed in those bonds and banks do this all of the time right just so people know yes yes yeah so like nothing necessarily i mean you could argue that and we'll get into this but like they should have known that they had parked too much money in that investment tool because interest rates are rising like we all knew interest rates were rising and going to continue to rise so you would have thought that their risk managers would have realized that they're probably over leveraged there and should have diversified further but they did not and basically a few venture capitalists grew concerned about the solvency of svb and they actually um, instructed their portfolio companies to move money out of the bank and basically once people caught wind of that we had this somewhat unprecedented virality through the internet Mm-hmm. Twitter in particular, sort of supercharged a traditional bank run. They had a straight up traditional bank run. Depositors got nervous, went to withdraw their money. That spirals and makes the bank less solvent, right? Because then they have even less assets on hand. And eventually they, they realize they don't have enough to meet all the depositors' demands. But that whole thing was sort of ch- turbocharged by Twitter because mm-hmm. the news was able to spread more quickly. And as soon as like influencers on Twitter started typing in all caps, like, like take your money out now, and like literally, falling. like that's what people were. That's what they were doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, totally. So it sort of, you know, spread this panic and like fueled the contagion. Another angle of this that I think is important to note. So there's sort of there's the fault of of the risk managers at the bank who probably should have realized that they were over leveraged in a asset that was losing value. The depositors themselves are to blame too because 93% of depositors kept just like way too much money in a single account at SVB. Right. A lot of them, that was the single bank that they used. Right. So they weren't diversified enough. Mm -hmm. So most of them had money, 93% had more money than what was covered through the FDIC, you know, insurance. So more than $250,000 in a single account. For example, here are just some like rough examples and numbers from some of these companies and the amount of money they kept up with SVB, a payment technology firm called Circle kept 3.3 billion. Streaming service Roku kept 487 million. 
Crypto lender BlockFi had $227 million. Roblox, which is some sort of online gambling platform in California, had $150 million. And BuzzFeed had about $56 million in cash and cash equivalents. Yeah. The majority was held at SVB. So all of everybody was basically ignoring like obvious warning signs of risk of not being diversified enough. Yeah. Another facet of this whole thing, the bank saw a dramatic increase in its deposits over between 2021 and 2022. And that is... Largely, if not all, the result of artificially low interest rates and basically like expansionary monetary policy, which was pumping cash into the economy. That cash was going to businesses and investors who were then parking that basically interest free free money at SVB. So their right. and deposits this is something we've mentioned before doubled. too is during COVID, like people were saving more and more. Mm-hmm. As a whole, that includes businesses and startups. And then there was also a huge boom in tech because of COVID. Right. And so you had even more of an influx. Yeah, so you had the expansionary monetary policy during that time to try to stave off a recession. Mm -hmm. So basically free money that banks are lending. Then you have at the same time this like, confluence of like social trends where all of a sudden everyone's stuck at home so they want peloton and like you know other tech well, ventures seem microphones like, new computers new yeah, phones new totally all the everything tech gear. Yeah. for all working remotely and right yes so then everyone wants to pour money into these companies because the sky's the limit right there's right. demand so you see massive influx mm-hmm. most of those goods consumers keep for a considerable amount of time right so then you the natural trend is that then you see a steep drop off in the next year or two right which you know i i wonder how much so you know we had further expansionary monetary policy as a result of you know in reaction to covid and government lockdowns but this has been a longer term trend since 2008, you know, so it's been it's been over a decade of artificially low rates and some form of quantitative easing over the course of that time. So just like money printing, essentially. So I wonder how much that has. I mean, we have a generation of investors who are that is the environment that they're used to operating in. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how many of them just like weren't accustomed to sort of reading the tea leaves and seeing i think it seems like a lot of people were completely taken you know sort of caught off guard by rising interest rates which me just some random person who like studied like i only have an undergraduate degree in economics and i like and i knew rates were going to be rising as soon as inflation got us you know out of control right, as it exactly did, right and so it's kind of shocking but i think a lot of these people just grew up in an environment where that was the norm like so they really didn't expect sort of the investing landscape to change too dramatically. And it has now. So a lot of people are getting caught with their pants down, so to totally. speak. Totally. And then the other thing that's, I think, important context to this is the type of bank that SVB is, and not necessarily the type of bank, but who it's catered towards. Mm-hmm. And that is basically technology and healthcare innovation. Mm-hmm. And so this is 
the cycle of the industry they're in, you have capital fundraising for your project with no guarantee of returns. And if there are returns, massive offsets in that you're saying this is a very interesting endeavor. We're hopeful of it. People see the potential and you might not see returns for three, four, five, six years. Yeah, it's high risk investing. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So it was there was like a lot of risk happening in like every single facet of these deals from like the way the bank was managing their assets, the way the companies that were being invested in, you know, the loose monetary policy, just pumping cash. Like right. a lot of, you know. And so you have companies putting massive amounts of money into a bank that then is giving loans, massive loans to startup companies which I, I would it would be interesting to actually see the data on success of yeah like rate of failure but i'm sure it's high yeah totally um, and i don't know how repayment work repayment works on something like that frankly if you you know have a hundred million dollar fund that's going towards research and development and then your company goes under where does the hundred million go i don't know <laughs> Well, we're going to get into that, but it's right. almost like, where did the hundred million even come from? Well, there you go. So it's, yeah. it's, it's all around, you know, kind of an unstable niche form of banking in, in the development Silicon Valley kind of world. <laughs> Silicon. Yeah. Sil <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And then. As everyone's aware, you know, the Biden administration stepped in pretty quickly. And I think their goal, one, politically, they just, they obviously have an interest in preventing sort of a wider contagion bank run scenario mm -hmm. across the country, of course. So I think they stepped in um, to avoid that. And they like to say that it's not a bailout but it is for all intents and purposes a bailout of that bank and those investors mm -hmm. as you pointed out svb cared to tech startups and venture capitalists not small businesses as biden tried to portray it when he made his address to the nation explaining why they were going to be stepping in these are not there was a hilarious uh reel that was floating around instagram that i shared on whiskey benches story but it's this kid kind of mocking the whole thing. And he's arguing that he's a small mom and pop venture capitalist fund. And right. He's like, it's literally run by my mom and dad. <laughs> now we can't go to Mauritius. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, like, so these were not small businesses that, you know, were just trying to make sure they can pay their employees. Like, yes, there were like random little niche tech startups that probably couldn't pay the salaries if they had not of their employees, if they had not been bailed out. But again, these are not like, struggling no these businesses. are billions and billions of dollars yeah. of capital all being totally people making six-figure salaries like right anyway and you know just to harp a little more everyone got their bonuses and cashed out right before everything collapsed oh yeah I all got the some... presidents mm -hmm. and, you know all that stuff so bankers just doing banking things yes totally um that's not new right so so yeah i would argue it is a bailout because Yes, technically, like this isn't directly paying for. So let me back up. Sorry. Yeah, this is actually a question that I have because 
I actually don't know if this is true or not because I don't think it's we won't know until we know exactly how much is being paid out and how much was in that fund. Yeah. But the claim right now, and I hope you'll elaborate, is that the FDIC payment for bailing this out is a well, and again, you have to go down the weeds of where this money comes from, funded by quarterly assessments due by banks. Banks pay fees. Yes, quarterly. Yeah. That goes into the protection. Right. And FDIC is claiming that they're drawing from that and that taxpayers are not being burdened for this particular bailout. Right. But, so that is true. Okay. Two points. One, who pays the fees to the banks to then fund this? I mean, that's all of, all of it is depositor money. So yeah. it's normal people like me and you. And the fees we pay at the bank is that's what funds being able to buy into this federal insurance. Um, in the fund, they're going to... So normally the fund is... It was started in 1933. The initial limit for coverage was $100,000. If you had $100,000 or less in your account, the federal deposit insurance would kick in and cover you. After 2008, they raised that threshold to $250,000. In the case of SVB... Biden basically said, not only are those people covered, but we're actually going to make sure that everyone else, which is most 95% of the investors and or, you know depositors at SVB mm-hmm. had more than that amount. Right. We're going to make sure that those people are all made whole too. So they're dipping into that emergency fund to cover these people. Yes, it's not directly coming from taxpayers, but that fund has to be refilled. And the burden of refilling that is going to be borne by average people at who have accounts at banks who pay fees to mm-hmm. do services at that bank those fees are then used to pay and in, into that fund again right so like ultimately the burden is borne by just like when you raise taxes on corporations ultimately like all those costs get passed on to the consumer right, right. there isn't some magical separate place on their balance sheet that that money comes from it's ultimately coming from the people that are paying into the bank which is the consumer so yeah, and so this is back up just slightly because I don't know. SVB is a, I guess, what would you call it? A mid-range like player. It was a big bank, but not the biggest. 16th, 17th? 16th, yeah. 16th. Mm-hmm. Their assets were like $200 billion, something like that. And then, what was it, over the weekend, $40 billion was withdrawn? Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay, and then maybe you're going to get into this too. The obligation, that math doesn't add up, right? The obligation is for banks to, at all times, keep 10%. No longer, my friend. Ah. Yeah, I've got some, okay. some disturbing notes on that. Yeah, so let me jump here so for the past several decades banks were required to keep somewhere between three and ten percent of their of reserves on hand did that vary because i know that it varies by bank and like the size of the bank okay yeah Mm -hmm. so i believe bigger banks had to hold less because they had there was just like more there right um but somewhere between it was like typically three seven or ten percent is what the reserve requirements were 
And I am, didn't know this actually until like I knew that, but I didn't know what I'm about to share until just the other day when I started to dig into this stuff. Beautiful. I'm I, like, terrified. I did not realize this, but on March 26, 2020, the 10 and 3% reserve required reserve ratios against new like net transaction deposits were reduced to 0% for all banks. So basically really? no reserve requirements was instituted in 2020. In March, so just at like the beginning of you know the panic about COVID, so it it essentially removed reserve requirements altogether, and it was replaced with something called interest on reserve balances, which is basically where banks are paid for keeping reserves on hand by the federal government. So there is still some sort of a mechanism to incentivize banks to keep some amount of reserves because they're being paid to keep those reserves there. But that seems so effed up. Not the same as demanding banks hold a certain amount of reserves. And I honestly think, and I'm not a banker, so maybe I'm wrong, but 3% doesn't seem like enough to me. 10% doesn't seem like enough. It used to be 25%. Yeah, okay. Like after the Great Depression, it was 25%. Yeah, so let's let's go into this a little bit too, because we have to understand how like the banking system works and lending money. And it all has to do with, I mean, it's it's all, I want to be careful how I phrase this. It's all cleverly manipulated and engineered, right? To optimize growth, stability, everything like that. Mm-hmm. And so, from what I understand, I'm going to be working off of a 10% holding. The way it worked is that if I put $10,000 into a bank account, the bank, I gave the bank permission to use up to $9,000 of that to lend to businesses, individuals, whatever. Mm-hmm. Bless their little hearts. They'll give me my seven, eight cents a quarter of right. interest. Small interest on yep, it, yeah. For, for lending it to them. Mm-hmm. They, then they would give it to someone that wanted a small loan. Mm-hmm. That money, the $9,000 that I had goes to this person for their loan who then pays like the contractor. Then the contractor puts that $9,000 in the bank. Now his bank is allowed to use 90% of it. Mm-hmm. So on and so forth. Right. And at 10%, my understanding, there's like an equation for it. Um, I remember doing this a long time ago. It wasn't stats, but it, it, it's interesting. Basically at 10%, any amount put into the bank projects itself into the market a hundredfold. Hmm. So ten thousand dollars deposited has a one well nine hundred ninety nine thousand dollar market effect hmm. by the time it, it transfers to like zero essentially. That's, Which is really powerful, yeah. and that's why our banking system is incredible, and we have such robust, massive economy. Right. That's fractional reserve banking. Right. Yeah. Hmm. But it truly does all hinge on the fact that everybody's bought in everyone's cooperation everyone's cooperation yeah if if too many people to say "Mm, i want my full 10 grand out right now yeah that's a bank run and the whole thing collapses so more thoughts on that to come but yeah i wanted to just note a couple things about sort of this bailout typically uninsured deposits get 90 cents on the dollar back on whatever money that they they lost when a bank fails so 90 cents on the dollar 
So that's hardly like a wipeout. Yeah. You know, in that context, Biden stepping in and saying, we're going to draw down further on the FDIC fund to make these guys whole. So, so back up there, because I think I missed something here. 90% return, meaning like the bank has a run. It doesn't have the assets. It needs to sell everything. They would be able to get back 90% on the dollar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the average person. That's right? my understanding. Historically, okay. historically, that's what people end up getting. And it's not immediate, right? They, I'm sure the bank has to figure, yeah. like, sell assets to figure out how to come up but with the money. But it's not a bad loss because right now, like, it's the average, the average person in the stock market right now is down like 25 percent in their total assets. So <laughs> these people maybe would have made out better than that than gambling on the stock market. Really, through a bank failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I am interested because I don't know, like, what's what's the argument here, like the too big to fail argument or I think for, it was just political reasons. They don't want there to be, they were scared that if they didn't step in, there'd be further panic, more bank runs and the whole fucking thing would collapse. And then they'd have a banking crisis on their hands to deal with. So I think, and to some degree, maybe they're right. Maybe they did need to do that. Maybe they needed to do that to kind of quell everybody. But in practical terms, it's kind of fucked up to spend because one thought I have is like, okay, well, what if there are further bank runs and what if it's not an elitist, you know, tech bro venture capitalist bank, but it is like a, an actual mom and pop small business bank. Like, and we've like drawn reg- down like a regional, like a regional bank banker. where people like are actually still leaving. And now there is a trend happening, forming where people are leaving regional banks and going to the big five. Mm hmm. And we've spent that insurance fund, you know? Yeah. I mean, we can like keep printing money for a while, but mm. that isn't backed by gold. That's just backed by, you know, faith in the U.S. government. Right. So a lot of it is just, you know, kind of backed by feelings and <laughs> things that aren't concrete. Right. And I think certainly there was a time when people didn't think that the u.s's reputation would change but i think it is and i think there's there are i know global actors that are actively trying to undermine like the dollar being the you know reserve currency of the world and so it's just interesting there's a lot of different factors kind of merging that seems could have the potential to totally undermine like our financial system and standing in the world but I think it's kind of reckless to bail these rich tech bros out. <laughs> yeah, so uh, um, this is something I'm going to have to dive into more, I guess. And this is, I guess, a broader question for the listener and just the individual. Like, isn't it worth losing 10% of what you have in a bank to ensure that an irresponsible bank is removed from the market? Yeah, I'd argue it is. Like, shouldn't everyone that is a founder, like, become bankrupt? And <laughs> Right. Shouldn't everyone lose their job and mm-hmm. just SVP doesn't exist? Right. And sure, it will send traffic to other large banks. Yeah. But. In a free market system, that's how it would work. Yeah. It would fail and people would learn and hopefully not repeat the same errors. Mm-hmm. So this is the moral hazard question, which, like, all the economists on Twitter have been like, 
what about moral hazard okay, <laughs> like throughout right. this whole thing so what's the what's the moral hazard so the idea is that if we bail out these depositors it's basically what you just said like they aren't going to learn a lesson they're going to realize like okay i took all of this risk mm-hmm. it failed but i haven't suffered any consequences so i now am incentivized to continue taking these types of risks you know so basically well, no no lesson is learned because no pain is felt right so now look at svb they, well, I actually don't know that they actually, I mean, they actually went under though. Yeah. I mean, everybody's going to lose their jobs and yeah. the bank is closed, but like nobody's actually lost a significant amount of money. I mean, I, we shouldn't say that like everything's rosy for them. I'm sure there's, you know, there are, there are some consequences, but the idea that we are the people, the depositors who were reckless and kept too much money in a single mm-hmm. account more than what should have been insured. And they knew what the insurance limit was. Them getting made whole, like, that's, that is, that's part of the moral hazard. So, whatever it is with 500 million or, t- you know, $1 billion, I guess the question, should they just get a $250,000 check? And not the rest of it? Yeah. I mean, that'd be a pretty good haircut, I think. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's not that I want to punish these people, but, like, I don't think that your average Joe banking, you know, at having to pay the fees to pay back into the insurance. Like they, why are we on the hook for subsidizing this? And it's not as if these are people who like, okay, so they're like food delivery business startup fails. Yeah. Is the world worse off because of that? I don't think so. Right. And these aren't people who are like going to be like panhandling on the streets of San Francisco now. Like, it's sort of ridiculous yeah. that these are the people that we flew in to save. And again, for political reasons, Biden sort of presented it as, you know, small mom and pop businesses that just have to make payroll. <laughs> and um, I think that's a inaccurate characterization. But it's also one funny thing on the moral hazard point. Larry Summers, who was uh, one of Obama's economic advisors, and he's sort of a respected Economist who's certainly more like lefty, but kind of mostly centrist. And he uh, was one of the few people like from the Democrat Party who's been sounding the alarm about inflation for a while. Well, I mean, now this is take this with a grain of salt, but like even Elizabeth Warren harps has been harping on banks about inflation and their risky tendencies of how they manage stuff yeah totally right i mean she has like all the wrong ideas for how to deal with inflation. oh yeah I know. she just wants to spend more money and not raise interest rates which is just she doesn't connect the dots between right but it's like one of the things we're like yeah even like even she knows something's not operating right yeah yeah well right? so larry summers was one of the few democrats who was back you know months ago a year ago was saying like no it's not transitory like there was you know sort of team transitory and then the people who were like mm, no this is like sticky inflation and we have to like stop this reckless expansionary monetary policy to rein it in which is what is happening with the fed you know moving the target to raise interest rates but larry summers was on it was either an interview or it was a tweet, but he was like when SVB was crashing, he was making the rounds saying that now is not the time for lectures about moral hazard. Like we got to just, right. we just got to bail out these tech bros. Like there's no, don't pause and think about it. And I just found that to be quite funny because of course there's going to be consequences like that. It, we're 
giving the market and actors in the market the wrong lesson by the government swooping in and like fixing it without just letting failure happen. Yeah. So I guess this is this again still goes back a little bit. So basically the Fed got control of SVB. And over the weekend, the federal government. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Not Federal Reserve, just making yeah, yeah, a exactly. There. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and over the weekend, kind of did damage control and everything like that. Mm-hmm. What happens to SVB's assets? Because they're obviously leveraging other people's money, and they've got their own investments, and they've got their own pool of profits, and you know what I mean, like. Yeah, I mean, I think the... Is there a way to follow the money, you know? Well, I don't... Yeah, I mean, I don't know how an average person can... I don't know what is how it's reported on, but I would assume, you know, the federal government is now, like, that corporation, I forget what they called it, but basically they created an entity to manage it. So it will be the management of, like, dissolving the bank and its assets will be managed by the federal government, and presumably some of those assets will be what's used to pay back... Mm-hmm. depositors but I, I don't know i wouldn't be surprised if there's like complicated shady maneuvers like taking place who there who gets to but, buy the, the assets <laughs> yeah well that was i mean they did try to sell the bank before the federal government stepped in i mean this was all happening within like hours right when sort of shit hit the fan on twitter but and i think from my understanding is there was at least one one entity that stepped forward and wanted to buy the bank but regulators said no and so the federal government stepped in instead i'd love to know more of the detail behind that and who it was that stepped forward and why it wasn't allowed to go through but right so anyways so a couple other funny little side notes so there there were chinese companies with accounts at svb so you know some republican senators have been like so basically the United States federal government is bailing out Chinese companies with links to the Chinese Communist Party. And yep. Yes, that yeah. is true. You know, and I think most of the companies and it's been verified, like some over a dozen Chinese businesses came forward and said, like, yeah, we were banking at SVB. But, you know, they allegedly it's all it's a relatively insignificant amount of their larger, you know, assets, sure. It's just probably true. Yeah. And it is what it is. We can't discriminate about who well, there no, gets but, uh, and I don't maybe I'm bailed maybe out, I'll, but maybe I misunderstand that, but that doesn't seem like a bad thing just because that money is then sure it's businesses that have ties to China, but the US is leveraging that money. What do you mean the US is leveraging it? Like SVB, like it's part of the United States economy. As far as once it's in that account, is that correct? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, then that bank is loaning it, presumably, to other people here. Right, that but, are banking with SVB. And, but now that it's insolvent, they're getting all their money out. Right. And all their money wasn't there. So it is, some of that money is going to be coming from the Federal Deposit Insurance gotcha. Corporation. So, you know. Right. So, like, technically, you know, we're bailing out, like, Chinese Communist Party companies, which the Republicans have had a field day with oh, that I'm sure. one. Oh, sure, right. Um, <laughs> Um, one other thing that's just a little concerning. So FDIC on like any typical day only has around $50 billion. So like it doesn't have enough in theory to like cover all of this. Cause I mean, yeah, 40 billion. Yeah. So there was about 200 billion there. 
Yeah. So, so I guess the hope would be that they sell off all the assets. They're missing ten percent, and then twenty billion comes out of the fund. I mean, I hope, I hope there ends up being good reporting yeah. on how all this <laughs> takes place because, like. The FDIC's there, but it doesn't actually have, like, it legally is supposed to have 1.35% of what's, it has reserve requirements, and has 1.35% of what it needs to bail out, like, major banking institutions at any point in time. Mm-hmm. It only needs 1.35% of that on hand, which isn't a lot. That's not a lot. So, um... Just to put that into perspective, the... The bonds that SVB sold, they it was at a two billion dollar loss, which is only one percent of their total assets, and that made people freak out. So one yeah, percent doesn't seem like a lot. Big hole. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not. So. Huh. And in two thousand nine, Congress passed a law that basically directs the Treasury to refill. The FDIC, whenever it's exhausted, so it's supposed to give basically a $500 billion line of credit from the Treasury. And that, in theory, is enough to cover any like worst case scenario, but the money isn't there now. And the Treasury doing that is just like, that's literally just like, that is just printing yeah. money. Yeah. So, and like, there are inflationary consequences of just like adding that much money back into, you know, the money supply. So, if we ever reach that point, like that's not, it's comforting to think like, oh, it's covered, but there are consequences of doing that, of printing that much money and right. pumping it into the economy. A couple interesting side notes. Good old Gavin Newsom. Nice. Governor of California. Uh, turns out he had money. He had three, at least three wineries who had, and a couple other businesses that there were, they banked at SVB. And so he like had direct financial interests in getting his investments out. And so he was like lobbying the federal government to bail them out, which is not legal. He shouldn't be lobbying the government on behalf without disclosing this. Right. It came out after. Of course. Yeah. Naturally. And then, but also him and his wine wineries, wasn't it like during COVID that like, I don't want to say something that's completely and totally false. Didn't like he let his wineries stay open? I don't know about his wineries, but he definitely, um, he was the infamous governor who got caught at the at French, French Laundry, Laundry. Yeah, which yeah. is that incredibly yeah. bougie restaurant right. that, yeah, he was like maskless with eating dinner with a bunch of lobbyists right. from like it's, the healthcare industry. <laughs> right. And it's one of those places where it's like $200 a dish and yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's the kind of place where like you're dropping like, between like six and a hundred and a grand like per head for yeah, dinner yeah. kind of place, you know, prefixed. Yep. Priceless wine pairings. Put on the, put on the company card. Yeah. <laughs> Taxpayers dollar. They got it. Yeah. We're not wearing masks. That's Anyways. Right. And then you had alluded to this earlier, but the CEO of SVB sold $3.6 million in stocks two weeks before it became clear that the bank was insolvent. So he's good. Oh, yeah. Probably sold off everything. I know a lot of them also got, like, bonuses. You know, were paid a lot of money. And you don't know, you know, I know that they sold bonds at a loss to fulfill their needs, right? They knew that they needed to keep a certain amount or they had a goal. That's why they did it. 
mm-hmm. and then it just backfired. So, I, so I, I don't know. Like, obviously, the selling those stocks and paying bonuses right before you go insolvent is is bad. But I don't know if selling the bonds at a loss was some. It doesn't seem like it was some like act of malice. It was like no, they had to. They, their back was against the wall. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. they were doing what they had to to fulfill their needs. Yeah, and just really bad timing. I don't know. Like, yeah. Well, again, that's where like the panic that was really turbocharged by Twitter, like, is a big piece of this story. You know, like, had that panic not happened, they could have. They would have had more time to figure out how to raise the capital that they needed. Right, because I, I guess because as I've been trying to understand this more and more, and I'm 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 kind of a big dummy on all of this. I'm not I'm no, not particularly savvy when it comes to financial institutes and finances in general. But like like I said earlier, they sold all of their bonds or some of their bonds at a loss. They mm-hmm. lost two billion, mm-hmm. which is only one percent of their assets. Now, if it's true that they're leveraging ninety percent of those assets. They're making gains on that in other markets. And so, yeah, they're selling some of their assets, which I know you said was a majority of what they had at a loss, but they still had 60% of their other assets in other forms of investment. So, again, if there wouldn't have been a run, wouldn't that have been made up potentially in a year or two? Like, Yeah, it, I mean, depending on how long until people, like, if there had never been a run, I think they could have weathered the storm. Yeah. Right. Hmm. But it it really is that like, and again, and that's the Achilles heel of fractional reserve banking. Like as soon as that panic happens, like you don't really have a way out of it, you know, and that, and then you are just like caught with whatever you have on hand and you likely don't have what you need on hand. So it's a challenge, but it's also kind of amazing that none of the regulators overseeing the bank, like looked at their balance sheets and recognized that they were um, over leveraged in, you know, long-term assets. Uh, there's some sort of accounting mischief that can happen where like those long-term bonds don't have to be counted against like those long-term assets are, are like what's considered like held to maturity assets and basically that doesn't get have to get counted when they're looking at like the overall risk assessment Mm. of their balance sheets so by ignoring those they didn't you know regulators didn't take note of the fact that like there's too much sitting in those long like hold to maturity assets but like both the the federal reserve and the california department of financial protection and innovation were supposed to were overseeing the bank and like didn't pick up on any of this Democrats, of course, are like looking, using this as an opportunity to say like, well, it's technically Trump's fault because in 2018 there were, um, there was a rollback on the Dodd-Frank banking regulations from 2008. And it basically lifted the, it lightened the regulatory oversight on banks with only 50 billion in assets and raised that to 250 billion in assets so started treating banks with 50 billion more like mid-sized banks instead of large banks um so they weren't scrutinized as closely an interesting little wrinkle in the whole thing is that literally like frank of dodd frank 
signed on for that rollback hmm. in 2018. And there's actually a funny little a story with um, from the New York Times covering this. But so I'll just read a little bit from it because it's kind of entertaining. But so basically, so this is from the New York Times story. Frank was a primary architect of the Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, better known as Dodd-Frank. But since his retirement in 2013, he had repeatedly voiced support for softening one of the law's key planks that any bank with more than 50 billion in assets should face, especially in intensive federal supervision. The ensuing tweak, lifting the threshold of 250 billion, had big consequences. Among other things, scores of very large banks would escape, at least initially, the Federal Reserve's annual stress tests and enjoy easier financial safety requirements. One bit beneficiary of the change was Signature Bank, a New York lender whose board of directors included Mr. Frank. Mm. So he basically like was an architect of the Dodd-Frank regulations after 2008, retired in 2013. Fast forward to 2018, he's on the board of Signature Bank, which is one of like the, which was the second bank to, it didn't actually have a bank run, but they closed it before it was going to have a bank run um, after SVB failed. That seems like a... There's all these crypto bros that are like, like, they are just coming after us because like they catered to the crypto industry. And I, I don't know. Okay. I, I don't, I don't have an opinion on that. I don't really know. So they're just like, joke's on you. You can't run the bank because we're just not even going to let you try. Basically, they were like, you so are holding people's. I mean, the depositors are all going to be fine, but yeah. like they basically were like, we're shutting this bank down because it is going to be insolvent. And we're going to shut it down before there's a bank run and just manage like gotcha. closing it basically. But so Frank then becomes is on the board of that bank lobbies to <laughs> lift the restrictions that would basically make it not have to deal with these types of regulations mm-hmm. And and then and he received. So I'll go on with the New York Times story. Mr. Frank received more than two point four million in cash and stock from Signature during his seven plus years on the board, left the job on Sunday as regulars regulators dissolved the board. He said on Monday that the bank was the victim of overzealous regulators. Quote, we were the ones who they shot to encourage others to stay away from crypto. So he's also fueling this like crypto conspiracy theory, but he's like a Democrat senator was a Democrat oh, senator, gotcha. Frank, of Dodd-Frank, and Barney that, Frank is his name. I know, he's just like some hundred and hundred of millionaire. Yeah. It's just funny. Tech expert. So, you know, <laughs> they're trying to say, like, it's Trump's fault. And, like, there was actual, like, those rollbacks in 2018 had bipartisan support. Like, 30 House Democrats and, like, 15 or so, like, Senate Democrats. Like, it was it was a bipartisan thing. Mm-hmm. One of the the architects of the original Dodd-Frank signed on for it, benefited hugely from the rollbacks, you know. So it's not, I don't think it's an easy partisan right. plug uh, there. But anyway, I'm also kind of just interested in like, if you want to chat about sort of the fractional reserve banking as a whole and like what, is it a good thing? Is it a bad yeah, yeah. thing? Yeah, well, because I, I do want to dive in that a little bit because yeah. it, from... From everything that I've known about it, and especially thinking about the last few days, like it does seem like a really good thing because it's just like credit can be leveraged for for important things. This is leveraged, but what's the balance, right? Because if you increase the requirements for assets held on hand, it's exponentially affecting growth, right? Negatively. Yep. yep. Versus the opposite positively, but obviously having no limit seems like an issue. Right. <laughs> um, 
the alternative seems like maybe you should be able to give the bank consent on the percent that they're allowed to leverage of your money. Mm-hmm. That'd be interesting. Yeah. But that also seems like a nightmare of... Think of the paperwork. Yes, keeping track of it. <laughs> yeah, that would probably be too burdensome But it'd be, to be it would be like similar to being in the stock market and choosing a moderate or an aggressive yeah. form of growth. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. But that's not your growth. That's true. You're giving them consent to... Yeah. Maybe the bank pays you more, a higher interest yeah. rate, if they're allowed to like yeah. use more of your money. But the thing is, it's not like they're literally going to like Stephen Torna's account and being like, I'm going to take eight grand out. Right, exactly. Right? Like, it's cumulative assets right. that they're it's leveraging. Just one so. giant bank. Yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. So, I think the challenge, as we've noted, is that the bank never actually has the full amount that it owes its depositors. And as we've noted before, like, the system works. Which to be, I mean, which completely makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's like it does. that would be, there would be completely stagnant otherwise. Yeah. Totally. And it works until there's a bank run. It works until the depositors get nervous and want to pull their money out. And as you noted, like, this is the system that allows banks to make loans. That's what fuels our economy. That's what fuels growth. So I don't, there's a lot of classical liberals and libertarians who are like anti-fractional reserve banking. I don't think I fall into that camp. I see like the inherent, there's obvious value with it, right? Like I wouldn't be able to purchase a home if I wasn't able to get a loan from a bank and take a little bit of money out of everybody's account to do it. Right. Like, you know, right. So we all in, you wouldn't be able to get a business loan. I get that. On the other hand, it's system wide. It's risky. Although it's kind of incredible that for the most part, there aren't, there aren't bank runs every day, right? Like the system works. But when it doesn't work, it's just it's right. painful. Yes. You know, so and maybe that's risk that we're all willing to take. But the classical liberal libertarians take issue not just because of the risk of default, but because it essentially creates money out of thin air. I think that's what they have a bigger gripe with. And that's true. When you what you were just describing right, earlier, exactly. it literally the, it's does a create money. Fold projection, yes, it it's is making money. Correct. So, you know, but but it's it's making money. See again, this is this is where it gets confusing, right? If it's being leveraged for things like business loans, and it's being leveraged and creating money in the form of, like, like, not just physical money well it's not physical money but not just like ledger money but actual goods and resources yeah because then it's being put to use in the economy and it's creating you know widgets which are then so it's creating value yeah right yeah certainly it does cash per se it's not like the fed printing money right but it has similar effects yeah yeah it yes it can still i mean yes it still has an inflationary effect when well it's when those two systems work together when the fed buys assets through quantitative easing and basically like gives cash to banks that it just created then those banks are you giving those loans out and rates are at virtually zero so it's basically free money that people are getting right like 
that is increasing the money supply and that is has an inflationary impact but on the flip side it is creating value because it's funding businesses which are paying people and creating things that people value and and people pay for right so yeah. like it is creating value but it's also producing taxes things to be taxed yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah totally hmm. right <laughs> so <laughs> yeah um and as we noted like now they don't actually have to hold any uh reserves so we might just be at the beginning of sort of reaping the consequences of that i mean really a wild thing we pulled out all the stops to f- prevent a recession after shutting down the economy during COVID from quantitative easing to zero interest rates to not requiring banks to hold any reserves. I mean, we were just like incentivizing pumping money into the economy and that's what not holding reserves is. That's an incentive for banks to then just loan all that money out and try to like make money on, on the money on for the banks to try to make money on deposits. Right. Which again is stokes growth, but also drives inflation. Right. And doing all of those things at once obviously created, um, overheated the economy. And I think we're just in the early stages of a correction across the board. A couple of interesting quotes from some classic libertarian minds. Oh, wonderful. All right. Murray Rothbard, the father of anarcho-capitalism. Ah. He says, quote, the bank creates new money out of thin air and does not, like everyone else, have to acquire money by producing and selling its services. In short... The bank is already and at all times bankrupt, but its bankruptcy is only revealed when customers get suspicious and participate bank runs. Yes. That's totally true. Yep. Uh, Thomas Jefferson. Here's a quote from him. All right. Okay. (laughs) If the American people ever allow banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. The issuing power should be taken from the banks and restored to the people to whom it properly belongs. Well, so this is another quote I saw. I don't remember who said this, but basically it was it was something along the lines that like banks reap the benefits of capitalism in good times, but rely on socialism in failure. To be bailed out. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a fair and so critique. I did see, this is very interesting. Uh, someone mentioning at what point like if a bank fails is it does it become like do banks need to be a publicly traded and, and I guess that's where like well sorry like should it be like co-op style like should banks be owned by the people and if some are I'm sure there's, there's you know there's got to be some I don't even know how would it being cooperatively owned and managed well it would be you know obviously there's there's different forms of it but if it's like a a member owned and operated bank which i believe like usaa is like you get returns on their growth Hmm. like pretty good returns and like dividends and everything like that which i don't see why you wouldn't be able to actually start something like that hmm that could be a solution, I suppose. Yeah, there's there's some like... And if everyone who is participating in it is reaping the benefits, but also 
subject to the consequences. Yeah, and changes the incentives. Could be a bit better managed. Yeah, perhaps. It seems like you have to create better, stronger incentives to prevent, to create more risk aversion Mm -hmm. so that they aren't, you know, lending to useless startups and invest, like keeping. I mean, literally, SVB just did everything that, looking back, like, probably shouldn't have lent money to these types of companies, probably shouldn't have allowed these companies to keep so much money on hand in single accounts, probably shouldn't have put 90 plus percent of its assets into like one type of, you know, financial vehicle. Yeah. Right. Like there were just obvious things that were too risky that. So how do you change the incentive structure for them to not take excessive risk? Yeah. So here's now again, all this ties into our conversation we had a long time ago about regulation and its place and when it's appropriate, when it's not appropriate, should there be any regulation? Right. Like obviously you give money to a bank, you're consenting to them using it. You know, we've kind of, it's been such good times for so long that even through the 2008 crisis, something like that, like the mentality is just, Put your money in the stock market and you're going to be guaranteed 8% over the life of your investments and then then you're going to cash out and everything's going to be happy-go-lucky. Then you have a failure and then everyone switches mode and says, well, there's no guarantee and it's a risk to put your money in the stock market. And Yeah, yeah. And so I think part of it's a bit of delusion of people not really understanding. It's like it's not magic. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and it kind of yeah. seems like that's the, yeah. it's magic. You put your money in and you're going to get 8%. Yeah. Right. And well, and that's where the moral hazard comes in. Yeah. And if you bail them out, then they don't learn a lesson and they keep assuming excessive risk. So going into the regulatory side of it, should there be caps on how much any individual account can hold in a bank? Forcing people to bank well among a variety of banks? I'm not going to endorse any one particular thing, yeah, but like, exactly. but maybe, and yeah. the FDIC insurance cap of two fifty thousand, two hundred fifty thousand, was designed to create an incentive for people not to keep more than that in a single account. Right, but but here, now here's the alternative, and I'm going to say this loosely, okay, because I'm poor. <laughs> but two hundred fifty thousand dollars isn't that much money. Uh, yeah, I guess. When you think about the size, yeah. like when you think of how many businesses there are right, in right, America, right, right. $250,000 for a business, especially, mm-hmm. is not that much. Like I think, I think you could still be a small business operating like around a million. Hmm. So $250,000 guarantee seems low. But if you are a medium-sized business that maybe is operating $5 million or something like that, which again, I say this loosely, but like in the scheme of the market and businesses, it's not that much money. It doesn't go that far. No, no. You need 20 different banks to like ensure <laughs> safety? That's kind of wild. And we know a lot of banks really suck. So it's like, you know, I'm just kind of spitballing here. I don't that's, know. That's I don't fair. know. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. Should there be any guarantee? 
but we're kind of in a situation where where to operate in in society today you 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 really can't operate without a bank no so that's why you don't have people stuffing money in their mattresses and right so well this is where i think crypto was a a vision of an alternative place to store money right exactly but that has been i think not killed but discredited enough in the short term that everyone is turning from it yeah so here's one alternative although i did there was a huge uptick in crypto once the bank collapsed well yeah i mean the people were like, bros oh, were like, like bitcoin mm, let's yeah. go back to something yeah. that's i mean that is where the blockchain technology where it's like you can't you know you can't fuck with the ledger like it yeah. is what it is this mm-hmm. is what i have and it can't be taken you know the security in that is an innovation that i think would would change banking it would help right being able to follow stuff know where stuff is yeah specifically also know which money belongs to who could you have like a fractional reserve system with crypto? That might be an incredibly stupid question, but I don't understand crypto enough to know. Like could 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 if would it be possible for like the entity that manages those blockchains to then like leverage the the funds in a single investor to create I, new money? I would, I would say there would have to be because you because you can basically stake crypto which is like lending it for adding to the blockchain and then you get a return on that Hmm. um and it's like a form of consent and you know whatever the return is supposed to be it sets eight percent or three percent or whatever whatever it ends up being Mm -hmm. so i guess technically you could probably engineer it into it and it would be like no, but it would probably be engineered into it like no more than ninety percent of any given account can be leveraged or or something like that. Right. And this is where it goes into the actual like individual consent, I suppose, because then as as an individual, you could keep track and give consent for how much that you want to be leveraged, and then you would get that return back on it individually because it can be tracked it seems like there'd be more uh guardrails and guarantees built in yeah that don't require like federal oversight but are just like built into the system itself yeah so another alternative is a global digital currency digital currency (laughs) (laughs) yes but i don't like that alternative no this is like a hardcore libertarian alternative which um, I have a ton of articles that'll be linked in the show notes. Uh, one of which is from the Mises Wire, mm, which is from nice. just like a blog out of the Mises Institute, which is like Murray Rothbard, like yep. anarcho-capitalist badass <laughs> <laughs> or crazy, but I think it's great. Um, so I'm just going to read from that piece. Uh, okay. So quote, the solution to both bank runs and business cycles is to institute a gold standard along with a 100% reserve requirement for warehouse accounts. Warehouse accounts meaning accounts like bank accounts where the the bank is not leveraging it to make loans. Mm-hmm. We must foster the public understanding that we live in the real world, not a utopia, and thus all investments carry risk. To avoid risk entirely means foregoing any prospect of a return and paying for warehousing services rendered, just like paying for any other good. Right. So the idea being like, okay, you're not going to get 
paid interest on your savings account, but you're going to pay the bank to literally keep all of your money there, knowing that right. your money and is that's always of an actual physical there. like vault. Yeah, exactly. 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 Yeah. Okay, I'll go on. Potent- Which is great, and that's and that would be a good that that is a valuable service. Totally. Yeah. And you see that. that. I mean, that's how most like current precious metal operations work. Is sure. that if you're dealing in silver and gold specifically, there's other things you can deal in um, at any sort of scale. Most of those businesses have an actual physical vault and you are paying them for their resource as well as the service of keeping it. Right. And you know it's there. Yes. Now, I, that's not to say if you wanted it and you knocked on their door, they're going to give you that gold, but... Well, I don't know. At Wouldn't least, they have to? Uh, well, you would think so. And at least there's... It's physical, right? I think I think they would. Yeah. Okay, so let me go on with this. So, potentially banks with both warehousing and investment divisions, so meaning one where you store your money, one where you are agreeing to letting them lend it out. Banks with both warehousing and investment divisions could offer free warehousing or even a return on warehousing accounts to entice people to use their investment division over that of competitors. Right. But the separation between divisions would have to be strict for this to not be fractional reserve fraud against both the individual depositor and the public at large. Under this system, it would be possible to have economic growth, no inflation, no business cycle, and no declining price level, too. Mm -hmm. The trade-off is that it would slow growth. Correct. Which you pointed to earlier. Now, I guess the argument can be made, though. Slow, stable growth is better than uncontrolled unstable growth the, which, bus- the which, business cycles that yes. and, and which so this is where like the Rothbardian libertarians will point to if you look at business cycles in the u.s economy they pretty like pretty much as soon as we started like regularly instituting fractional reserve banking i shouldn't say regularly instituting that once that became the status quo like business cycles became a regular like that cycle became a pattern that we observed, right? Right. So, and this is something to consider if you look at the downtick in between World War One and World War Two in the United States. You look at well, the Great Depression, obviously. Um, downticks in like the eighties, downtick in two thousand eight. Like, is the stagnation in the market due to those catastrophic incidences? Like, I guess, how does that balance out to just like a slower, stable growth over time? Right. Like, maybe you'd be better off just over the, you know, the last 200 years of, well, really 100 years of how we've been banking, like, Mm -hmm. more stable. Right. I don't know. Right. Right. And so this is where my weird brain goes. I started to think this could be an area of common ground or at least an opportunity to try to like cross boundaries with the leftist uh sort of quasi socialists mm-hmm. environmental activists giving yeah. them a lot of labels yeah, <laughs> yeah. basically that cohort who you know, disdain our consumerism, which I have, you know, I have empathy for that. I'm not a fan of it either. Um, empty consumerism is sort of, is like destroying our culture. And I get that. Pollution's bad on board with that too. Right. Um, <laughs> 
some of them have sort of an extreme like anti-human philosophy, which yeah, don't is stand with incredibly that. dangerous yeah, right. and like leads to genocide. But um, but the the basic premise that like pursuing economic growth for the sake of economic growth is not good and that shouldn't be our end goal Mm -hmm. and there are consequences to that that are environmental consequences you know wealth disparity consequences etc pollution that should be avoided and perhaps to avoid those negative consequences we should be willing to curb growth if you could get that cohort of people and then like the Rothbardian libertarians who are like, we should be willing to curb growth just to have a stable economy and stable banking system without these like fluctuate, like wildly fluctuating business cycles with recessions and like boom bust cycles. Yes. Wouldn't it be interesting if we could get those two people that are really those cohorts are on like opposite ends of the spectrum. If you could, there's some common ground there. Listeners can't see I'm I'm doing yeah, this yeah. hand gesture yeah, to show yeah. that these yeah. groups are coming together. We need a camera. We <laughs> need to start videotaping this. But anyway, but it seems to me that there's like some potential common ground there that could really be interesting. Because I think, again, I don't buy into the anti-human like we should all like go be medieval peasants and somehow that'll be better for the planet. But, you know, I think human beings... We should be focused on helping human beings prosper and flourish. And mm-hmm. there are millions and millions and millions of people in the world who still don't have, like, electricity and clean water. And we should, if they need to burn coal to have electricity and clean water and they need to mine for minerals to do that, like, right on. Let's do that. Let's right. lift their standard of living. Like, I'm pro-human. At the same time, do we need the level of economic growth that we have in the United States, for example, like, and I, again, I'm not talking about, you know, like I want to be able to have start a business and buy a home and like live. I mean, I'm starting to sound like socialist, but like, do we need people to be, you know, the rate at growth, it's not ending growth, but curbing the rate at growth is something that's more stable for the sake of having that broader, stabi- like economic stability and security financially right yeah maybe that's a good trade-off not a socialist yeah (laughs) (laughs) but and that would and that isn't like that isn't a government solution like you know there there is a bank actually there's a bank in wyoming oh a woman named caitlin long has been i don't know for how long but she's been attempting to create a full reserve bitcoin bank called custodia bank okay in wyoming cool i like it i mean i think it'd be neat if like and they won't government will totally get in the way and like they will be the ones you know advocating for fractional reserve banking and like you know trying to regulate away alternatives like bitcoin but it'd be cool if like we had a truly free market where like you know caitlin long can create her bank and it can compete alongside other traditional banks and you know maybe sort of this like alternative economy would emerge yeah that'd be great but it seems like that too could be an option to help kind of solidify the united states dollar as 
like a legitimate global currency, right? Or a standard. Yeah. Is if we kind of start correcting it and say, well, no, actually, like we're fixing it and they're, this is actually backed and this is legitimate and yeah. we're starting to reduce how unstable it's been. And, yeah. You know. Well, if we went back on the gold standard, I think that would be, you know, that would be an important, really important, like that'd be half the job of just like, yeah. of restoring faith in the dollar. We're nowhere near, you know, that at all, right. unfortunately. And I think with our current deficits, like we don't even know if we like really could go back. Like, I don't think there's enough to, yeah. like it, it would be a mess, but um, banks around the world have been buying up a lot of gold. Yeah. So not us though. You know who has been? China. China. Yeah. Yeah. So, and they're in financial turmoil because they've had like a economic system based on sort of the same thing, just mm-hmm. like government stimulus and public works projects. Yeah. And building, destroying mountains to build cities that are sitting empty and that sort of thing so like i don't know if they're really going to supplant us as like the reserve currency of the world but they're trying to right they're at least gathering a lot of resources right (laughs) and when we make missteps and are over leveraged and too in debt you know we don't put ourselves in a good position to fight that yeah no i'm talking you know earlier you mentioned businesses with ties to to china had money and svb and things like that but it'd be great to incentivize people from all around the world to want to bank exclusively in the united states yeah well and i mean and that is one plus to a more globally connected world mm -hmm. it's like opening it up to and and they do right like We still do have probably the most trusted banking system in the world, but that position can change. Right. So. I don't know. I'm checking my bank accounts every day, though, just in case. (laughs) (laughs) Not that that tells you anything, but the same day. Please accidentally put $250,000 in my bank account. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait, no, you're thinking the other way. (laughs) Please don't take all my money. (laughs) Yeah, like Uh, it was just a totally unrelated glitch. But that same like Monday when everyone was panicking about SVB. Wells Fargo, like their app was like down or something. And so like nobody could everyone's account looked empty and everyone freaked out. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Yeah. That got fixed. That was just a complete computer glitch. Right. Unfortunate timing. Bad PR. Oh my god. Yeah. Their yeah. comms team was probably like freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. What I got out of all of this is that banking is wild. It's kind of incredible. The system we have is or the system we have um has led to incredible opportunity and growth. But it's also risky. Everything's kind of fake. Yeah, it is kind of all just. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. like it requires some sort of delusional cooperation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. One last thought yeah. I have on this. I think like we've pointed out the ways in which SVB took excessive risk or just like ignored obvious things that they should have paid attention to. But in some ways, you can't really blame them or mm-hmm. the depositors because they were just following like basic Keynesian economic thinking. 
and and we're listening to the so-called expert class that said inflation would be transitory. Yeah. It said like interest rates aren't going to have to rise. And that basically just assured everyone that that it was reasonable to just like that the status quo wasn't going to change. So they were operating on that assumption on, you know, the authority of all the experts from Jay Powell at the Fed to Janet Yellen at the Treasury to fucking Joe Biden in the White House. Like yeah. everybody was saying on the yeah. same talking points. Yep. It's all going to be fine. It's just transitory. Fine. Yeah. You know, and then when the shit hit the fan and the Fed finally had to like rein in its expansionary monetary policy, like it changed the entire cal- calculus for these people. So if all you did was, frankly, if all you did was watch like MSNBC and read the Washington Post and you like trusted the people in our federal government, yeah, then exactly. like you were doing all the right things. So, yeah. You know. and, and they were just, they were doing what they were allowed to do, what regulation told them they could do. Yep. Yeah. So that's a plug for paying attention to others. Yeah, right. Yeah. Learning things beyond, you know, the Keynesian status quo. I should really, thinking. I should really tune into some of those like hardcore invest in gold people. Yeah. You know, you always hear those commercials yeah. like on, like when Rush Limbaugh was on, you know. Right. And you kind of just dismissed it, but you're like, that's cool. Gold's cool, but like, you know, it's inconvenient. What about stonks? Yeah, that's right. Stonks. <laughs> I don't want bling. I want 12% growth. <laughs> yeah. I want to be able to swipe my card. I think the alternative, my dream alternative would be major deregulation and banks just have to compete with each other. And you can have fractional reserve banks and you can have like full reserve banks mm-hmm. and you can have people that experiment with crypto and we see which one works best yeah and then then there's great incentive to diversify yeah mm-hmm. and kind of instead of you know buying bonds that you don't get much growth on anyway right you could just have your assets held yeah Imagine if there were alternatives and it's not doing away with our fractional reserve banking system. But if there was an alternative where like if you wanted to, you could pay like a pretty high fee, but you could keep all of your money there and you know it's sitting there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be the only thing that's eating away at it is inflation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> I don't know. I think it could be interesting, but I think we're so we're so far from anything like that ever happening. There's too many powerful interests that would prevent that yeah the unfortunate reality is the only way that that could happen is complete and total collapse right and then everyone and then you have to start over and then you start at zero yeah sadly like everything we want requires Requires that happening at zero i don't like this (laughs) i know it requires like hellscape right yeah and then we can build something better but anyway Plot twist. Biden's Build Back Better agenda involves total destruction of... <laughs> now we're building back better. Yeah, now we are, yeah. <laughs> we, we evened the playing field right. now that everything's been nuked. Everyone's broke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Figure it out. Yeah. Lord. All right. Well, that, that's interesting, to say the least. And I'm sure there will be more banking stuff popping up. 
We'll see if regulation changes now or if it doesn't or if more banks fail or they don't or. Right. Or if they reinstitute reserve requirements. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Be interesting. Yeah. See how the stock market behaves. Well, so the Fed's going to be raising their their federal funds rate like target, which is what's influencing interest rates. So that's supposed to happen. They're making their have their meeting next week, I think Thursday. So oh. they um will we'll see. They had originally basically projected that it would be a 50 basis point increase. And now at least as of Friday afternoon, the stock market was sort of hedging that it would be a, a quarter point instead mm-hmm. of, you know, a half point. Yeah. So we'll see. If they don't raise it at all, the stock market will rally like crazy because they'll be like, cool, easy money's back. Yeah, yeah. That's bad for inflation. And Good inflation yeah. isn't over. The the CPI, which is like the core producer index, like those numbers were up this last, look, looking back for this last month. So What's inflation at right now? A little over 6%, I believe. But that's also looking, everything is measured from over the course of a year. Yeah. So that number is looking back a year from now where inflation was already like fully set in. Right. So if you were to do it like two years out, I don't know what that number is, but it'd be higher. That's than why 6%. you have Biden being like inflation is down because of me. Well, the rate of inflation <laughs> right, yeah. dropped slightly yeah. from one month to the other, but overall prices are still up like, you know, over 6% for the year yeah. and more. If you go back to like pre any inflation, pre COVID, they're up by a lot. Just remember, guys, your average earnings on investments are barely keeping up with inflation. <laughs> your salary is barely <laughs> keeping up with inflation. Uh, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So anyway, so the Fed still has more work to do. The frustrating thing is that, you know, there's only like monetary policy, in my opinion, like drove a lot of this inflation. So like they have a responsibility to like basically rein in mm-hmm. all their loose money. But the Fed can only do so much. And there are negative consequences of raising rates. So we're, we're seeing them in the banking industry, but we're also seeing them, you know, in other um, parts of the economy, just slowing growth altogether. And that's where, like, there's a f- there's fiscal policy that can play a role in this. And that's where, in the 80s, you know, the, the Fed under Paul Volcker, like, fucking raised rates to, you know, double digits, like, way higher than what we're experiencing oh, oh, now. Yeah. Way higher. 20- yeah something percent yeah. and in that and it was super painful and it caused like a short sharp recession but it got inflation under control and reagan once he came into power balanced that by cutting taxes and we may have some listeners out there who are not a fan of reagan but frankly he cut taxes that's that helped balance the economic growth from Interest rates were higher, which slowed growth, but then cutting taxes released, lifted a burden on businesses and spurred growth. And the two things together worked in tandem to move the economy forward. And right now, we've got one of those things in place and not the other. Um, So, you know, we're inching closer and closer. I mean, we are. We're like in the early stages of a recession, right? And like, it depends on like how sharp is it going to be and how long is it going to be? And again, there's a fiscal role that could alleviate some of that, but I don't think this White House is going to pursue any of those policies. Yeah. We got to find like positive ways to end yeah, our I episodes. Don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's been <laughs> uh, lots of doom and gloom lately, I guess. Sorry. 
That's all right. <laughs> the plus of being young and only slightly invested it just doesn't hurt quite as much. Yeah, there. I will say that's when it's like kind of cool to be broke because yeah. you're like, whatever. Right. <laughs> you see that meme from It's Always Sunny. Oh, they're like, right. They're what you call new poor. We're old poor. Yeah. We know how oh. to handle this. <laughs> Yeah, basically, though. It's great. It's kind of true. Oh, it's beautiful. Old poor. All right. Well, there's there's SVB Bank in a, in a nutshell. Yeah. Lots of interesting stuff. Plenty more I need to learn about. I need to take like a... I need to find a good class on banking. Yo, Khan Academy. Yeah. Really? On YouTube? I, I like, mean, I, he basically got me through college. Totally. Mostly with calculus and physics and chemistry, oh. but I know he knows everything about everything. Really somehow. does, yeah. And his wife, He's both of them. He's just so good at explaining yes. things. Yeah, yeah. I I definitely like went back to him and was like, bonds. Yes. <laughs> Help. <laughs> but yeah, he's a great resource. Awesome. Well, till next time, friends. Spin the whiskey bench. <laughs> Cheers. Hey, hang out with us on Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. And uh, we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.